Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Fight Club. here with my colleagues, Dr. Kim Perkins and Paula Sizik. We're members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that helps leaders align their organizational culture to their business strategies. Every month, we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations. What works, what doesn't, and most importantly, we talk about the simple tools they, and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. Kim, give us a quick synopsis. Okay, so this is from Google. A depressed man, played by Edward Norton, suffering from, ins- from insomnia, meets a strange soap salesman named Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, and soon finds himself living in his squalid house after his perfect apartment is destroyed. The two bored men form an underground club with strict rules and fight, each- and fight other men who are fed up with their mundane lives. Their perfect partnership phrase when Marla, played by Helena Bottom Carter, a fellow support group crasher attracts Tyler's attention. Fight Club was released in 1999 and was directed by David Fincher. The screenplay was written by Jim Uhis, perhaps? Sure. Sure, why not? And with the novel by um, Chuck Palahniuk. Yep, you nailed it. <laughs> Today we'll just be discussing the film version, to be clear. So, sorry, book readers. Sorry. So, the first thing I want to talk about is it was released in 1999, so it's almost 20 years later. Did it hold up? What did you guys think of the movie before we get into the business? Well, before we even get into that, let us share a spoiler warning, even though it has Spoilers. been out spoiler alert. for 20 years. So if you haven't seen it at this point, I don't know. I can't help you. Um, all right. So with that spoiler warning said, uh, yeah, it's been out for 20 years. Are you guys ready to talk about Fight Club? Yeah. What did you yeah. think 20 years later? Um, I think it is really a product of its time. Uh, so... You could talk about blowing up buildings, and you could talk about shooting up a workplace, and also no cell phones, so it was clearly the 90s. So the plots of so many movies would be destroyed if they had cell phones. Those movies would be over in 30 seconds. I feel like this would actually get worse. I feel like they could (laughs) encourage more mayhem um, if they had tried back in the 90s. Um, you know, one of the, the it's true that this is a product of its time, and when you rewatch it, you can't help but think about all the things that you would be doing differently or have to do differently today. Because, but it has probably had an effect on the culture. So I, I don't know. I, you know, I think you always notice that when it's twenty years on. But for me, I don't know if this is for everybody, but a lot of it really held up thematically. I thought it was compelling, and maybe that is cinematographically. Uh, no, but, That's but, a word. Yeah, it's a word. Right. No, it's a word. Uh, you guys knew what I was trying to say. Uh, visually, I mean, I thought it was still really compelling and pretty to watch. And it was funny. Like, So I would say, yes, totally still worth a watch 20 years later. See, I like David Fincher is amazing, of course. 
I think, like, 17-year-old me loved it. It was, like, groundbreaking. 35-year-old me is just fed up with it. But is that because you're seven, it's your 17-year-old self versus your 35-year-old self, or is that, like, actual passage of well, time? Well, I hope I'm slightly smarter and more uh, wizened right. as I'm older. But, you know, you also can't, well, one, like you said, it's pre-9-11. The other thing is it really leans into toxic masculinity in ways where, I think when you watch it, it's hard to it's hard to know if it glamorizes it or it uh, or it points out its flaws. And I guess we can talk about that a little bit more. But good to know. So we're going to jump in and analyze the two companies in the film. One is an automotive manufacturer that the narrator actually works at. The other is the uh, Paper Street Soap Company slash Fight Club slash Project Mayhem. A lot of pivots in that company. Uh, before we jump in, though, let's talk a little bit how we analyze organizations. We look at organizations through five domains. The first is environment, so those are the conditions around the organization. Next is purpose, so this is the reason why the organization exists. The next is strategy, so that's the choices and trade-offs that the organization makes because of its purpose and its environment. Then we look at structures, and this is how we divide resources and people. And then lastly, systems, things that govern individual behavior in an organization. And you can also think of those as nesting dolls. So environment dictates everything, and a change in environment should cause you to reflect on your purpose, strategies, structures, and systems. So let's talk the environment, Kim. Paula. I was going to say, I'm like, why does Kim get to talk <laughs> about the environment? Uh, no, so like, I think it, it really does go back to the 90s, right? Like, it, it very much feels like that office drone. I was saying we should do a whole series on how the office is portrayed in 90s films because I feel like in some ways the narrator is working next door to Thomas Anderson of The Matrix, right? Like I actually did look at a clip from when Neo is escaping the the Matrix. Um, and it's it's the same. It's the same boxy computers and the endless cubicles. Uh, the and the suits. Oh my God, the suits are amazing. Uh, the suits and the skinny ties. So like there's there's a 90s office aesthetic that's going on here. The other thing is that you know, but but part of having been a, an office worker in the 90s, right? And say this, which is that there really was kind of a much different approach to work at that time. So in the in than we have now. I mean, in in the in that environment, it was a much more mechanistic environment. So where he's got well, maybe this gets into some of the stuff we're going to talk about later with, in terms of assignments, but. Those office parks, there still was like the soulless company office parks as the main way of doing doing business, um, and that's what he works in. Yeah, probably though for you know hopefully 60, 70 percent of our uh, audience that still exists. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean it definitely, it definitely. You know, I think you're right, Paula, that it looked like the Matrix, even down to like the green tones of the office. And the cube walls, so I think that was a that's a really cool observation. And they're they're actually bringing in like there is a scene where somebody's coming in to talk about cybernetic in the office, <laughs> and like yeah. So on the one hand, that is clearly being sarcastic within the movie itself, but also like that is something people were talking about. Like the internet was coming into offices. Um, I mean. They're still using landlines and payphones in this movie, and that was '99. That was not that long ago. Also, flight coupons. Yeah, yeah. I know. I was trying to figure right. out what a flight coupon was. That's right. how. That's right. how like, now, before, detached I am from that era. Before the TSA. Yeah, I. You know, it looks like a world a lot like ours. It's 
late 90s, so everything's extremely branded and people are reacting to that. Like, that's like the peak advertising age where they were still everywhere and we weren't necessarily hating it entirely. Um, The narrator's world feels like yuppie goals with no meaning, right? And it seems sort of like everyone is chasing that around him. Uh, It's also a very white society, let's point out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the yuppie thing is really interesting because that that used to be kind of, you know, a term that meant for pursuing materialistic goals with no soul. And now those kind of professional jobs are kind of sought after and people, you know, it's very competitive and and nobody's really that worried about not having a soul. Everybody talks about this movie in terms of, oh, it's like this anti-consumerist nihilist movie and they're they're going off the grid and like literally his apartment full of Ikea furniture gets blown up. But I think this is actually a movie about work. If you if you listen to it, like work is brought up so much, the different careers. They talk about the waiters and Tyler Durden is a film projectionist and they talk about the baggage handlers at the airport and the cops who are studying it and he works it's it's all about the different jobs yeah, do. and that's part of the masculinity. Work is your identity, and so you're brought up to think that you're going to have this really meaningful work, and then you don't end up having your work and identity be that merged, and it's terribly disappointing. Yeah, I mean, a big theme of the film is, like, the absent father, absent God idea, and it's filled in by work, it's filled in by uh, consumption. Things you own end up owning you. Uh, you know, there's the famous Tyler Durden phrase of the things you own end up owning you, when the narrator's house blows up, he says, I was close to being complete after he talks about his, like, DKNY suits and his CK shirts. Um, I would also say all of those jobs you mentioned, Paula, no one seems engaged at work. It seems like no. devoid of meaning in sort of in that society. Is it a really Gen X movie? Speaking as <clears throat> millennial TM... I wonder if this is, like, the the traditional, like, Gen X, we're so jaded, nothing really matters. Um, So I'm looking at our Gen Xer. As the token Gen Xer, TM. Yes. (laughs) I would say definitely, because it was from an era where you would actually consider, am I selling out, you know, as opposed to, do I want health insurance? You know, (laughs) it's a different world. (laughs) Details. (laughs) I mean, they definitely talk to you about it being a generation of men raised by women. And this this movie very much feels, I think, what you said, Kim, that it's it's about your masculine identity in relation to work and ownership or consumption in some way. Yeah. It was, it was a time when, you, when people could spend a little bit more time thinking about what they wanted to be rather than just trying to, you know, deal with a terrible economy. So that's one of the things that happens in upward cycles is people can turn, turn to other things. Yeah, there was one line where Tyler Durden is complaining about how they've never faced a great war and they've never faced a great depression. And let me tell you, Hang having, on for a couple years. <laughs> having, having gone through both of those, let me tell you, I don't feel like I have grown as a person because uh, we got through the Great Recession or because we've been at war for 17 years. Um, so, so I don't think... You don't feel like you're missing out? No, I don't out. feel like those things have given my life yeah. more meaning. They were just sort of uh, pain, and I would prefer to not repeat them or to have other people repeat them. But we won't learn, so I'm sure we'll do it all over again. Great. So, anything else on environment before we talk about the companies? One more thing. In addition to this being all about work, 
I think that this is a movie about startup culture before startup culture was really a thing. If you think about it, you've got Tyler Durden, who is this legendary startup figure. He is, nobody really knows what he looks like. He only gets one hour of sleep, so he's always working or not working. He's always fighting. I don't know. He's involved in the organization. Uh, it has really exponential growth as an organization. They are in some ways on a mission to change the world. It's not necessarily the way that you might want the world to be changed, but they are very, they, they have conviction about yeah. what they want to, to set out to do. So, and it's, and last but not least, it's, it's real bro culture. It's all dudes, all the time, forming a community. And forget missing God or missing father. These guys just need each other. I mean, when you, that's, that's what all the support groups are about. It is getting hugs and reaching out, being able to share your emotions. And I hate sharing emotions. So it's strange coming from me. Uh, but this is... No, I totally agree with you, Paula, because I, I was thinking about that when we get to the leadership part, about how much this is definitely, I don't, and this may be a case where art influences life, even. Yeah. Okay, so with that, yeah. think of this as a cautionary tale of startup culture. Okay, now we can talk about purpose. All right, let's talk about the organizations. Let's break them down. Let's, all right. I think we're all going to be really excited to talk about Fight Club and Project Mayhem, so let's get the automotive manufacturer out of the way. So we All find right. out early in the film that the narrator is a recall specialist. His job is to work for this automotive company and decide when a recall should be called. So let's quickly talk about this company. Um, purpose, I'll start us off. Nothing about this company stresses purpose. What do you guys think? There's no purpose. The purpose in this company isn't even explicitly to make money. It's just to maintain the status quo. Yeah. So um, his job is a real recall coordinator. He is there to assess whether the um, the accidents have enough risk of causing major lawsuits, and if they don't, then it's fine to keep having the accidents due to the defects in the cars. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's not a, that is definitely a purposeless job and a demotivating one. If you this is not a job for somebody who is motivated by pro-social uh, actions. Does anybody know how much life is currently worth? No, how much is life? I, I I googled this before coming on the show today, and the answer depends on what agency you're talking to. So the EPA in 2016 valued a human life at anyone want to guess? I'm gonna say three million dollars. Okay, Kim. I, I I was thinking more the scientific idea of that your you know bones and blood and stuff is more like about fifteen dollars. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Interesting. That's where your mind goes. But yeah. but give me like a legal oh, so figure. like the legal one. Yeah. 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 I'll, I'll I'll say about five million. Five million. Okay. Yeah, five million. Uh, according to the EPA, it is ten million. Oh. But that's one of the higher ones. Level. I know, right? Yeah. Um, but again, it, it really depends. So if you talk to the Department of Transportation, I was able to find figures from 2007, and they valued a life at 6.4 million. So again, 2007, a little past uh, the, when this takes place, when this movie takes place. But just to give you some estimate of of what Tyler or the narrator uh, might be calculating. Uh, and then the economist Richard Thaler, or Thaler, I don't know, uh, valued it at $1.5 million. Uh, the, the only... The economists only economists. Yeah, that's why they call it the dismal science. That was actually based on a 1976 estimation, which was then adjusted for, like, modern dollars. 
the only consistent uh, fact across the board is that everyone agrees that the value of life is actually going up. So it's not going to get clawed back. It's going to continue to increase. But that value is probably measured in terms of what you can probably get in a lawsuit, in other words. They didn't. They didn't go into specifics uh, about how, because there's measured. and there's yeah. different ways, right? There, a lot of it is salary and how many hours of working. Like so if some people are worth more than others. Well, of course, but not even that. It's just <laughs> like if you have like one way they compare it is if you have a minor, right? Mm-hmm. Like I mean, someone who goes into mines, not a young person. Mm-hmm. Not, not my, um, my, my, my yeah, child labor minor. Yeah. my basket weaving underwater doesn't count as no, a minor. No, sorry, okay. sorry, not in this case. Um, so if you have a minor who gets injured um, and can't work on the job, how many minors do you have to pay in order to make up for that one minor? And so that's how they will do some salary uh, or life evaluations. Yeah. Good to know. Great. Yeah. All right. Uh, You want to talk strategy about this automotive company? Sure. A major automotive company. We're not told who. (laughs) But it's major. But it's basically yeah. all of them do this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So their their strategy is, um, you know, this is a, a minimizing cost strategy. Yeah, it's definitely even profitability, even over safety. So an even overstatement is something that we use just to codify a trade off or a sacrifice and a strategy that companies make. And when the narrator threatens, and when he gets sort of the seed funding for Project Mayhem by threatening the automotive manufacturer, he li- he mentions all these things about like brake pads that fail, um, yada yada yada. So they're definitely cutting some corners in this in this company. I think cheaper over ethical is there even over. Mm-hmm. So even as you're saying, Tyler Durden slash the narrator, he's talking about all of these things that they have been cheap on or that they've overlooked but he's doing that when he's threatening them and he's blackmailing the company and the company would much rather pay the blackmail to him as opposed to actually making things right so well, yeah, I think that math is so much easier than the lawsuits from yeah. <laughs> dead motorists yeah so cheaper even over ethical every single time mm-hmm. with that company and there's you know something to strategy too around drones even over full humans Mm-hmm. is the way they think about their employees, it seems. Yeah, it's a very mechanistic environment. So people are there being cogs in a machine. They're filling, they're, they, you know, there's just the reports in, reports out. Yeah. Um, and this could be done by anybody. There's no personality in it. There's not really even any thinking in it. It's just carrying, it's executing and carrying out boxes. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's one interesting thing I thought. So we'll talk about Fight Club and its approach to masculinity as a contrast to this company. Although I found the boss to actually be, when um, the narrator shows up with blood on his shirt, the boss isn't like, oh my God, what happened? No. There wasn't a caring or, you know, there wasn't. He's concerned about professionalism. Yeah, and he was just like, go home and change your shirt. You know, and it was like still a very masculine response. And we don't meet any women at this office. There's only, I think the only actual female character is Marla. That's yeah. the what I entire. recall seeing, except for like the people who are moderating the support groups. And, yeah, I guess. I guess know. is Chloe a character? She's, She's like a sort of a character. Prop. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else in strategy before we start to talk about structure? There might be something about efficiency, even over purpose or over effectiveness. Like, mm-hmm. there's a line again when they are considering cybernetting the entire office when they say, oh, well, this will lead to greater efficiency. Yeah, definitely. And it's definitely efficiency over innovation. 
Oh. So it's all about this. This company is all about the status quo at all times. There is no innovation. There's no innovation. Whatsoever. There's no interest in reforming things. It's just about, it is just maintaining the status quo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a big theme of this movie, right, is the lack of purpose. And it feels like an organization that only exists on inertia mm-hmm. really lacks any sort of definition around purpose. Right. It, there isn't even, like, a sense of a legacy, which maybe you could play into a purpose. It's very much just a pure inertia. There's no environmental sensing, either. Yeah. There's no love of cars. <laughs> no, like... No, it's true. Like, if yeah, you work for an true. automotive company, I would imagine at least there's there's some... There's some connection to the design of cars mm-hmm. or this idea of freedom and travel, right? There are things to like about cars. There's there a lot are, to geek out over on cars. It's also very exactly. masculine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. it's it's a traditionally, quote-unquote, masculine industry. Yeah. And yet there's no excitement or thrill or connection to that history of cars or being a gearhead. Yeah. That was really, that's a really good point. All right, so structure. How do they divide people and resources? And let's, And this is where we can talk about leadership. It's just a traditional hierarchy. From what we can see, there is the boss, and then there is the narrator. And basically, the boss tells the narrator what to do, and the narrator either does it or tells him to shove it. And that's it. Like, that's... Yeah, the boss is there as a, as a manager, not a leader. He's there to parcel out the work and make sure that it gets done. And, and, that's, and so he is a middle management cog in the machine. Yeah. Just because he's the boss doesn't mean that he has any more freedom nope. or purpose in, he's, or, he's or personality just, in what he's right. doing either. Yeah. I, I don't think there's a name attached to the boss even. Oh my god, he doesn't have a name. Yeah, he's he's just this I guess authority figure but he's not really treated as such. Except that people defer to him and make things cornflower blue. Right. That's true. <laughs> Ties and icons. Okay, so let's talk about systems. So these are the things that shape individual behavior inside the organization. The first thing that jumped out to me was the quote-unquote formula. The number of vehicles times the probability rate of failure times the average cost of settlement equals X, and that decides do we recall a defective product or not. And as far as I can tell, that, that is how they do it. Like, when I was looking up the different uh, calculations of how much a human is worth, that, that's how they do it. They figure out, okay, how much is a human life worth? How many people will die if we don't do this particular thing? Uh, the example I was looking at last night was, I think, rear car, car seat, uh, seat belts. And they expected that 44 people would die in a given year, and you multiply that by the number of people, and then you figure out how much lawsuits would cost, and whatever is cheaper is what they're going to go with. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things about this movie that was so impactful when it came out, and the book as well, is exposing some of these ways of working inside organizations, and a lot about, like, drugs and pharmaceuticals, too, but I think this movie does a really great job sort of exposing you, I think, at the time, which was, you know, you probably watched 60 Minutes, but this is still sort of shocking that people literally do the math every day about your life in these organ- in large organizations that make products like automotive vehicles. And that, too, is very mechanistic. I mean, yeah. there's, there's not any room in the formula for judgment or deciding to do something differently. You know, on the idea of pulling back the curtain, there's the famous scene where they're in the airplane and looking at the pictures of people in the safety guide. And all the safety people are very calmly and happily putting on their oxygen masks and assuming the crash position, and they're not panicked at all. But of course, in a real plane crash, would you really be that calm if the 
pressure has changed, your eardrums have already exploded, which would be a little bit painful, to say the least. It's the oxygen. The oxygen's getting everybody high, is what they which say. Which is not true. Which is not no, true, not by not the true. way. Um, it's the lack of oxygen. I learned this because mm -hmm. of the pop-up videos on this side. But I think it's something that people take away of, oh, like, these organizations are lying to us on mm -hmm. their face, and they're just trying to make us feel better about the inevitable end. I think that's a really big theme in the in the movie, actually, about and when we talk about the societal consequences, perhaps, or or what this is talking about on a societal level, is the idea that the people that people are not out to be your friend, not are they not being honest with you about what's really going on, and that there's sort of a secret thing happening in the background that you don't know about. And I think at the time that was probably more impactful yeah. and surprising than we would find it today, when half of our culture is built around that very thought. One of the threads I want to connect from the idea of strategy, drones, even over full humans, is just you, you pick it up when the narrator gives his card to Marla and there's no name on it. So their business cards have no names, which is also fascinating. Like, you are a, you are a replaceable a cog. You are yeah. a position. Yeah. Um, and just the jargon that exists in this company. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise them a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. Yeah, it just dehumanizes you. And it's delivered with these sort of dead eyes, you know. Yeah. And also, cubicles. That's a very late 90s environment for work that I think some people would actually really love to have back. <laughs> I was thinking how all movies of the, let's say, 2010s to the next five years are going to take place in these open offices. And in 20 years, people are going to look back and be like, oh, man, open offices, what were we thinking? That's such a 2010 movie. Yeah. It reminds me of The Social Network, the scene where Eduardo confronts uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and it is in an open office environment, and everyone's watching, and how that is so of its time, too. And to be able to compare versus when the narrator confronts his boss and it's in, like, the closed office. There's not even a glass door. So, definitely of its time. Mm -hmm. Anything else on systems before we move on to Fight Club? Let's talk about Fight Club. All right, so we're going to be talking about uh, what starts off as Paper Street Soap Company, quote-unquote, the yardstick of civilization, then Fight Club, and then Project Mayhem. Yeah, when, I guess it is a pivot. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. Uh, so we're going to break the first two rules of Fight Club, which, of course, are do not talk Talking about. Talking about Fight Club. Fight Club. Yeah. So, it uh, had to be said. Yeah. So looking at at purpose, what do you guys think is the real purpose of Fight Club? Because they never, they never really say... The greater good is what they keep repeating. And in Tyler, we trust of whatever that greater good actually is. Well, the purpose of Fight Club is whatever Tyler says it is by the end of it. Right. I think it's two things. I think it's feeling alive, because they say after fighting everything, life gets turned down. A near-life moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And then the second thing is, again, it's a replacement for these support groups and these forms of connections. So it's connection with other men that these guys are lacking. So... I think that's what Fight Club is about, but there's no real clear purpose that all these guys are signing up for. I feel like that, yeah, that that may also be a generational thing where you're making work uh, so that you can have an identity in this sense as an expression of your identity rather than being about something that you want to accomplish in the world necessarily. Yeah. 
And they talk about going from being made out of cookie dough to being out of carved wood. So there really yeah. is this idea of personal transformation related to the organization that you're a larger part of. I think it's also interesting, just to take a step back, that this was inspired by the real Cacophony Society, which was, uh, you know, very Fight Club-like. They they did lots of, like, large-scale social provocations. That group also ended up... Some members of that group also ended up spawning Burning Man after, yeah. after that. They um, didn't really, like, actually blow things up, of course. Yeah. It's important to notice nobody was harmed in this. I do remember reading about a uh, meat catapult at one point. Yes. Sounds like fun. Yeah. That does sound like fun. There is a headline talking about a catapult in the movie. I do remember seeing that only because there's the trebuchet versus catapult debate endlessly <laughs> going on, on on Reddit, and that's what stuck, stuck out in my mind. Um, but I didn't even know this was based off of a real thing. I honestly thought this was Chuck Palina coming up with this unbelievably clever idea that really tapped into the psyche of the late 90s male. So until I read your notes, I had no idea there was... Well, just that's the thing about the, the you know tapping into the psyche is people can do it in multiple ways at the same time. Yeah, and I, I think to be fair too, the Cacophony Society wasn't strictly as uh, gendered as Fight Club, and this ended up becoming. No. I, I think it's also really interesting to just note that this movie spawned multiple Fight Clubs around the country. Um, one of those being in Menlo Park. They're mostly tech workers in 2000, and also at Princeton. Princeton, I buy. That doesn't surprise me. Well, these are also very male-dominated places. Yeah, I mean, it's just an evolution of their eating clubs. So you go to your eating club first, and mm-hmm. then you go to your fight club to work off what you ate. No, it's very, very modern. Okay, anything else on purpose? You know, in relation to his apartment, there's just one throwaway line where he's talking about all the different things that he owns and how, yes, it, it completes him. He mentions that he has a certain set of imperfect bowls crafted by indigenous people, right? And this is, I'm going to be a little bit anthropological culturist culturist right now, Um, this really symbolizes a desire to connect to authenticity in a a modern mass-produced world, right? Like, he, he specifically seeks out those bowls because they are something that is authentic, and I think that actually does represent the, the theme of the movie, which is how do you be authentic when you don't have any challenges, when when work is kind of empty and meaningless, when you buy the same thing as everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Point looking for looking for identity, work a, a way of gaining an identity and gaining an identity in relation to other people. Yeah. Maybe the last thing I'll say is there's such a strong vein of egality in this company that, you know, it's sort of a, a shocking restructuring of society to be more balanced, but I don't know yet if that's really the nature of Fight Club, and we can talk about that. So, strategy. The choices and sacrifices this organization makes in pursuit of their purpose. What do you guys think? One of the most interesting for me was this idea of secrecy even over growth. So, on the one hand, you have don't talk about Fight Club, but on the other hand, you have Tyler going around to different cities and literally setting up f- franchises, yeah. and every organization is growing exponentially. So how do people find out about it when you're not supposed to talk about it? 
It's, it's a great paradox of the assumption of secrecy makes it so that you absolutely must talk about it and people gleefully break the rule all the time while saying shh. And I also think this is a great example of strategy in companies because a lot of times they will say that they are making one choice. So they will say secrecy is more important to us than growth or... Um, uh, I don't know, speed is more important than accuracy, whatever those trade-offs are. But when it comes down to it, in the heat of the moment, you actually choose the opposite of what your stated strategy is. Yeah. And it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. You just want consistency so that everybody knows, okay, this is actually what we should be doing and what we are doing. Yeah, I think that's something that we have run into a lot in our work, actually, with where people think that they want, have want one value and then... Once you get down into the details, that's where you realize that that's not consistent. Well, something you said, Kim, uh, really peaked with me because you said paradox. And I think a lot of organizations, they are dealing with paradoxes. And this one, for sure, has a bunch going on. One is sort of secrecy versus growth. The other is freedom versus control, right? They express that they're a very free place. But it very often functions like an autocracy that we can talk about. So I think organizations we go into, especially ones that are high growth, have a ton of paradoxes bouncing around that they ultimately have to resolve to create some semblance of structure and sanity at work. I mean, some you can really live with. I mean, every company is going to have some paradoxes, but this one's rife with them. Yeah, especially because, you know, thinking about how people are finding this freedom and camaraderie in this extremely controlled environment with a very low amount of resources, you know? So it's by sort of taking away all this choice that allows them to feel some, um, some peace and connection and purpose. Yeah. They really emphasize the collective even over the individual, right? When, the, when Bob gets shot... His up, name was Robert Paulson. His name was Robert <laughs> Paulson. And I, I see what you're saying in death. He becomes Robert Paulson, right? So up until that point, everybody wears the same uniforms and has essentially uh, no name. I also want to point out, what is it with organizations not having names? Like, this is such a trope in yeah. organizations. Have you guys ever been in any organization anywhere where people don't have names or specific numbers? It's it's a real that's a really interesting point because this movie is so much about identity. Yeah. You know, and especially for so everybody maybe that's part of the appeal of being in Tyler Durden's army is that you get a collective identity and not an, a a single identity of this shared um, extended identity instead. And so you that so his name is Robert Paulson that puts him over here separate from you, but it also has this by chanting it that's a connection, and so his deeds are your deeds. The other thing I noticed is obedience even over curiosity. And I think this goes back to what you're saying about, uh, wait, what did you say? <laughs> the paradoxes? <laughs> no, no, the wh whatever it was you said. Um, no, but this. It was profound. Let's just put it at that. It was. Whatever I said. It was so deep that I don't even remember it. Uh, we'll, we'll find it in It's like a back. mental enema. But uh, you are not allowed to ask questions. Every time mm -hmm. that even the narrator wants to find out about a project, he's trying to find out what's going on, they say, we're not allowed to talk about it. Or if 
it seems he's really insistent and wants to find out the answer. They'll ask him, is, is this a test, right? Are you, are you testing my loyalty to the organization? So, yeah. That's it, which is also an interesting paradox, right? right. I mean, it's another one that he set up, which is that he is the absolute autocratic leader, the charismatic leader who is, has found all this, and his word is what we do. And he's also, at the same time, told people to not believe him when he says certain things. Right. Right. So some of my some of my orders follow without question. Some of other of my orders ignore completely. Yeah. Can we can we talk about structure? Because I think it builds onto that. I don't know how this organization functions. Because on the one hand, you have this confusion between I'm the leader, you should do what I say, and don't believe me when I say anything. When Tyler Durden also says that this is an independent organization capable of functioning autonomously. So I don't know how it happens. How? Yes, it cannot function autonomously. Yeah, how do you have people who can ask questions also be able to do their own thing without coordinating with a group leader. So let me ask you guys, what do you think would happen if something, you know, if Tyler Durden got killed, or at the end of the movie even, when he's not really quite Tyler Durden anymore, right? right. What happened, what would the organization do? You know, I think it morphs into a darker thing. I think it's the Walt Disney thing where you keep trying to ask, what would Tyler Durden do? And that becomes the bracelet they all wear. <laughs> it's like Livestrong. Um, and there's something gets mutated in terms of, of what his intent might be. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. So people try to divine what the, the charismatic leader would, would do and then do that, but that could also backfire, as we've seen in other companies, where the charismatic leader takes an exit. Right. I want to point out, though, for our listeners, the difference between the structure and the strategies. Because when we say that structure should follow strategy, this is exactly what we're talking about. If you are saying we have, we've made a choice and this is how we want everybody in the organization to behave. We want people to be obedient even over making their own decisions and asking questions. But then you set up a structure which is autonomous and may or may not be communicating with each other it, it doesn't work. They clash with each other, and this is going to prevent the organization from being as effective as it could be. Now, in the case of Project Mayhem, I'm sort of glad that they're not as effective as they could be. But <laughs> they if, seem pretty effective. Yeah, for, for sure. At the, at the, yeah, at the time, they're pretty effective, but how much, how much longer can they keep this up? And again, if something happens to Tyler, they're kind of screwed. Well, I think this is actually what a lot of our scaling startup clients go through because they're trying to build these autonomous cells, which is how this group is defined, that also march in the same direction. And I think this is a challenge that they they find themselves facing all the time without a Tyler Durden. Yes. I think they devolve. I think if Tyler Durden dies and there is no clear leadership, leadership, uh, then what happens is that they do become splinter cells and... I think you do have people acting out independently, not unlike, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, angry, angry people that we see today who are engaged in shootings and other acts of violence. Right? There's a absolutely there's a tenuous grip to a community. Yeah, there's 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 an adherence to principles, but then different interpretations of those principles, and then that can turn into a lot of chaos. Man, it's gotten real dark real fast. <laughs> well, <laughs> like you could like you could talk about this movie without being dark. 
Yeah, I don't think so. All right, anything else on structure? Should we talk about leadership a little bit more? I think it's, I, you know, I think it's important to notice that a charismatic leader can hide a lot of, uh, and Kim, you can correct me here, a lot of narcissistic behavior or narcissistic personality disorder. Well, the fact is we love narcissistic leaders. We love leaders who have the dark triad traits of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and... Um, and the other one, I can't remember the second. Sure. <laughs> you know? That one. We all remember that one. It's live. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. So so we love, we, we actually, those are traits that are very, you know, when one person's narcissist is another person who is arranging the world, who's taking the world into a, you know, with, to follow a strong vision, right? Yeah. One person's Machiavellian is somebody who's just very practical and knows how to get things done in the real world, you know? Yeah. So, so we like those traits in our leaders, and of course, they have a large um, possibility of going wrong. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I did a little bit more digging. We've we've come across this in our work before, but the idea of a charismatic leader overriding rationality, right? They get you to do things. They get you to work harder. They get you to deprioritize your personal life. They can do that by tapping into your emotions. They also hide psychopathy. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, and you know, if you've ever read the yes. psychopath test. Oh, sociopathy, that is the third one. That one uh, yeah. the triad I was trying oh, to that. that was that. You know, the idea of getting um, not really having empathy for people and seeing them as pawns. Yeah. But um, yeah, but you know, a lot of what we consider right now is the main leadership style that works, it's transformational leadership and the idea is that you are helping develop people in a way where they can do more than they ever thought possible. I, I would actually argue it's rare that you see a flat organization. Everybody wants to have a flat organization so that everybody is empowered. But this is the closest I've seen to a, a truly flat organization. Like, okay, yes, you do have Tyler Durden at the top, but everybody else seems to be pretty equal, unlike the automotive company which is just a series of middle managers. It's a bureaucracy. Everybody seems pretty empowered to do to yeah. do things, maybe not to think, but when it comes to actually executing on their mission, they're allowed to do whatever they want in order to achieve it. Yeah. And even when Jared Leto's character, Angel or... Angel Face. Angel Face, mm -hmm. when he starts to rise in the organization, he's literally beat back down into the egalitarian structure. Yeah. And there's some hazing to get in. But some? Well, <laughs> Stand oh, outside okay. for three days, no shelter, no food, yes, no yeah, encouragement, okay. so, so being beaten butt with a broom. They're, they're, <laughs> some hazing. They're light. I mean, it's, I mean, you went to Georgetown. You can tell us all about it. <laughs> we, there was I don't know. like some inter sets of interviews I've been through, honestly. <laughs> we did not have frats. They were actually banned at Georgetown. No. Um, at Oberlin, we had co-ops. Co that sounds like a very Oberlin thing It was to still have. hazing. Yeah. But my point is, like, once you're in, once you get through the hazing, there doesn't seem to be, there's not classes, right? There's not, like, class of three days and class of 17 days. Everybody really works together in order to achieve their goal. Yeah, and that's really the, that's what everybody wants in this organization is to have that experience you know, of banding together and acting as one. And that's, that, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Paula, that's exactly what, what people are after. That's the purpose of the organization. That camaraderie, that esprit de corps that comes with being in an army is what people were missing because that's probably, I think, 
you know, yeah. part of the masculine identity that people feel we, they were missing. I like that you looked at me when you said masculine identity. I said as token if, male. Is that like omega male? <laughs> yeah. The uh, male who must speak for all males. I know. Token, as a male, what do you think about Fight Club? <laughs> oh, my God. So I think what we're talking about is systems. I just want to uh, define this really quickly. So these are things that shape behavior. So the hazing ritual is their onboarding process, which would fall into systems so that they can homogenize you. They shave your head. You're a space monkey. You're like everyone else, and that's part of how they guide your behavior once you're in Fight Club or Project Mayhem. Uh, what other systems did you see? Well, there's the rules of Fight Club. Yeah, there's eight of them. Yeah, which it's actually a very reasonable set of rules, and it is, I hate to say, it's consent-based. Yep, that's true. As general, right? It's like true. you get to fight as you long as you want. You decide your own level of involvement. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can tap out. When you tap out, that's it. The fight ends. So it's it's actually a very again, it's sort of an empowering that, organization. I'm not gonna say it's not that different from like Burning Man's ten principles in that regard. Yeah, and it's eight rules. I mean, we always talk about organizations need simple rules that you can remember, and these are simple rules that you can remember that will govern your behavior. And the the organization, the the men in Fight Club, they actually, to some extent, do enforce those norms. So when yeah. Tyler, well, the the narrator really is beating Angel Face to a pulp. He goes he goes way too far. Yeah, it's it's clear because the entire crowd goes from being jubilant and cheering him on to really this this hushed unease, right? And they start moving in on him. So there is a feeling, and it's conveyed to the rest of the group, that this is not okay. This is not what Fight Club is all about. Now, there's not a real... Yeah, even though there is a charismatic leader and he does kind of get away with it, that they they really want everybody to be on equal footing and have be bound by the same rules. And anybody can fight anybody else. So... Tyler Durden will fight people. The narrator will fight people. It really doesn't matter who you are. You can fight anybody you want. Uh, the only real rule is that if it's your first time at Fight Club, you have to fight. I want to talk Radical about participation. Why is that? Why make that rule that if it's your first time, you have to fight? I have my own theories. <laughs> <Yeah>. Radical. <laughs> tell us about radical participation. Well, I don't think that's really radical in the. In the Burning Man ethos, but in the Burning Man ethos, um, participation and immediacy is a huge deal. Mm. So in that one, that means that you have to, If that does mean if you're going to show up, you have to participate and not just watch. Yeah. Um, and if you're not, people will call you out. And so I think that that is, there's an overlap there. And the, you know, and, and that is, that's the no spectators role. Yeah. I'd say it's, I mean, we, Paul, I think the point you made about the fact that everyone becomes uh, self-policing and policing of the group because of these rules mm-hmm. is a really good one. Yeah. But also, it, what it also creates is just, you know, a lot of violence against outsiders, right? And I think this, like, look at Marla's entrance into the group, look at, you know, anyone who's not one of them, and I think this is almost like if you can survive the violence, you're allowed in, in some ways. At the end, Marla is allowed in in a really strange way if you're if you're willing to have that's, yourself that's like, up. That's like a lot of cults, actually. I mean, you have to make the price high to make... Uh, so, I mean, some of the, the cult-like aspects here are the high price of getting in, the high price of, of advancing, and also the fact that there are really strong, unquestioned bonds. Once you make it through the hazing, you are in, and now you're a brother, and yeah. you have access to this community. I have a point to make about cults, but I want to get Paula's... What was your guess about why, if it's your first time at Fight Club... You have to fight. 
No, I think it, it is this idea of a cult, which is they want you to commit. If you were to just show up and, and watch a fight, you could still back out. You could still leave and not come back. But once you fight, now you've done something which is... Which sort of, Transgressive. Yeah, it goes against what society tells you to do, right? There's that whole scene where they try and go and get in a fight with a stranger, and it's yeah. really hard to do because people don't want to get in a violent confrontation. So I think that by making people fight, it is sort of like the Scientology idea of like confessing all the things that you've done wrong, right? It oh says, yeah, so they, now they've got something on you in a way. Exactly, and also, but though I think that with the to the immediacy and the participation is also about so that you can feel it and understand from the inside what this is about. Yeah, That's yeah, true, you have so. to you have to be you have involved. To under, yeah, you have to be involved in order to understand it because from the outside it's going to look crazy. Yeah, I okay. So I want to knit us way back to the beginning of this, which was a really good insight you had, Paula, that this is a movie about startups. So when I was thinking, I mean, like, let's talk about this. This is a cult culture, right? And one of the things that I was looking into when I was looking into cults and, and cult organizations, there is a quote uh, from Douglas Atkin, who is the former global head of community at Airbnb. And he's been thinking, he was in an article and he was featured, he said he was thinking about cults and cultures. And we, we meet a lot of startup founders who want to build cult-like cultures. Um, and his point was he, uh, he really thinks that we should think... Uh, more reasonably about cults. His quote is, they're normal. People join for good reasons, and we should suspend our prejudice. The popular stereotypes of cults as manipulated, dangerous, and even suicidal is true to a certain extent, but that's only because only the dangerous ones get all the press. All religions began as cults, and contrary to popular belief, most cult members are normal, psychologically healthy, intelligent, well-educated, and socially well-adjusted individuals. Making the case for our organizations, I think, should be more cult-like. Uh, I have <clears throat> I have more first-hand experience than I would like to on this particular topic for reasons that will go unmentioned. No, I was not in a cult, just for the record. Um, this is a cult. Nobel is a cult, but keep yeah. going. I, I disagree in that I think what people are looking for is connection. And I think that people do want to be part of a community. I think that really smart and rational people who get involved in cults, there's just, there's a wall or a curtain that descends. I don't know, did you guys see Wild Wild Country? Yeah. So you would, you would listen to these people who are quite clearly intelligent. They are well-traveled, they're smart, they're kind and considerate individuals. And yet when it comes to talking about cults, something just changes and there's there's a gap missing or they're not able to connect points A and B. They're, they're just blinded by it. So you'll have seemingly charming grandmothers talking about assassination attempts or really intelligent powerhouse lawyers unable to understand that they're in thrall to a charismatic leader. So I would be of the opinion that People want community, but not necessarily. Cult, cults are where it crosses the line, and you start to lose yourself. But do we think? And Kim, help me, help me on this one. What do we think about when a startup founder comes to us and says, "I want to build a cult-like culture"? How do we feel about that? How do we feel about it for the individual? Good idea, bad idea. Where are the lines? The first thing I want to know is why, and because if it's for the elevation of the leader, 
then no, I want <laughs> no part of that. I've always wanted to be David Koresh. <laughs> if it is so that I can have unlimited power and get to do whatever I want and everybody has to do things my way, then, like, no, I, that is not, that's not good. Yeah. That is going to, that's not going to end well. That it cannot be a positive cult. But if you want to create a lot of adherence to, you know, one of the things that cults do, all the things that Paula said, and I would also add to that, that they have um, an ethos or strategy that simplifies things for their members. Mm. Just do X, Y, Z, and everything will work out. And it often does, because if everybody around you is all doing X, Y, Z, then that strengthens community, um, and you are both socially reinforcing each other, and pretty soon you have made it so. Yeah. You know, for a, for a very geolocated a place in time when this actually really works. Yeah. You know, and, and so that makes people really happy. We have found the secret. You know, and so that's actually not so bad. It's where you, the places where cults go awry is when you start excluding, you know, when, when you can't talk to your family anymore, <laughs> when there's, um, you know, some non pro social, pro, some anti social projects that you have to carry out as part of the cult member, as being this cult member, mm. you know. And so, really, purpose and intent has a huge amount to do with whether you are creating um, a project that people are really passionate about um, and really want to make part of their own identity versus when you are just trying to elevate yourself and get your way and, you know, screw around with things. Yeah, and I picked on Douglas Atkin a little bit, but I think Brian Chesky, the CEO of, of Airbnb, would also say the reason that you have a strong culture is that you can encode these rules to your point. They can be self-policing. They can give you identity. They can help you scale dramatically like Airbnb did. It is that that line. Absolutely. So the, so the why, the, the what, what is the end purpose? It's such a big deal. And, and yeah, people love them. People love being in cults. Yeah. All right, I want to bring us... You make more money as a leader, but you have more fun as a follower. <laughs> I want to bring us... Uh, we're almost to the end. The question we always uh, ask before we end is, what advice would you give either organization as they carry on? I think this movie makes a really important call for mental health and talking about it within the workplace. This whole... Uh, these shenanigans? Is that the right word? The, the Project Mayhem really Let's begins. go get a hamburger at shenanigans later. <laughs> I forgot if you say shenanigans. <laughs> um, no, this this all starts because Tyler is, or the narrator, is unable to sleep. He's got severe insomnia. He, he starts, quite frankly, having hallucinations and a split personality disorder or... or some form of it, there's there's some personality disorder. I don't. I am not qualified to be able to make the official it's judgment. It's disassociative. That's all. Okay. I mean. Okay. Great. But even Marla points out she's like you're you're crazy and you have severe deep seated emotional issues and you need to seek help. And I would almost argue that's that's one of the real takeaways of the movie that we really do need to reach out to people and and support them. Because there's still a lot of stigma around it, and there's there's limited options, I think. So it's it's really important to think about how can I support my colleagues in the workplace? What's the right way to do that? Yeah, I think you guys have talked about this before, where mental health at work feels like uh, the diversity and inclusion topic that still feels like it's 10 years ago, where we don't have the language to talk about it. It still feels like a compliance issue at work. 
like how do I, you know, it's all about workplace safety, which is really good. You know, we talk about, you know, in the film, he talks about walking around with an automatic rifle. I think those workplace safety is incredibly important, but it still doesn't feel like we have systems there that really care for people. We have systems that protect people, which we really need, but not really providing that that caring aspect. To me, the thing that is always, this goes unmentioned, but I see it in every scene of this movie, is really just the effect of trauma. Hmm. I mean, when the, when the narrator is going to the support groups and, and it's all about the crying, I mean, that's literally trying to alter your brain chemistry so that you release your stress hormones and you um, up the endorphins. It is, it is a, that is a, um, a response to trauma. And a lot, there are a lot of um, kind of lay therapies as well as like more clinically based therapies that rely on some of the same mechanisms to help get you into a diff- literally a different physical state so that you can think better and be more connected and be a better human. Hmm. And so everything they keep doing in this movie, to me, looks like attempts to self-medicate using these, these uh, systems. And that that's probably, to me, part of toxic masculinity that needs to get healed. Hmm. What could be one thing, and I'm not putting it in a spot, I'm thinking out loud for us, to try to create more of an environment like that, what's one thing that they could try? I mean, and certainly not to the extent that the trauma exists in this organization, but an organization, for example, that feels like it is tipping into uh, toxic masculinity or just, you know, not bringing yourself to work, not your full self, but your, like, parts of yourself. What could be something that they try? Um, that's a good question. You know, it's the strengthening social bonds. Yeah, you know they're 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 and in in ways that are meaningful, not just like we're all gonna go bowling, right. but in in ways that you know you can really feel the people's authenticity. And you know you were bringing that up earlier, Paula, in terms of um, people on the search for an authentic experience and also an authentic connected experience. We have two techniques that we use to increase those social bonds. One is really simple. It's called a check-in. And it's what we do at the beginning of every meeting. And a check-in just, it's its a question. It says, what are you bringing with you to this meeting? What's on your mind? What might be distracting you out there and that's preventing you from being present in this meeting? And people are allowed to share as much or as little as they feel safe actually sharing. So if you just want to say, like, oh, I'm just kind of feeling a little tired today, that's fine. You can say that. If you want to say, you know, I was actually... I'm tired because my kid was sick this weekend and I was really stressed out about it and so we had to trade off duties. That's fine. It's really up to you and the level of comfort you feel. But the idea is that by sharing this, by sharing these experiences with your colleagues, you can start to build those social bonds and have a little bit more understanding when maybe your colleague is a little slower to respond than you'd like or they don't seem to be quite with it. You remember, oh, actually, they've had kind of a tough weekend. Let me, let me give them a little bit more space. And then the second, but I was hoping you could talk about this, is this idea of, of really writing down your story or, or telling your story. Yeah. Yeah, this is an exercise we do with groups that have been working together for, the, for a really long time but really haven't socialized that put work first and not people, uh, you know, in terms of how we collaborate, who we are, how we coordinate. And it's just a really simple exercise. Write down the three things in your life, as much as you feel safe, that have defined who you are today. And the last question is, how do you want people to remember you after you leave this company? And then we will do this in a big group setting and actually ask people not to put their names on the piece of paper and we'll distribute them randomly and ask you to go find whoever's 
that story is and do it respectfully. Don't yell, hey, did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. I just combined Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania. They are the same place in my head. Um, and that's a really good way to get to know people. The last thing I'll say before we close is uh, Google Ventures does an anxiety party where they sit around a table and it's when you feel like you have a lot of stresses on the team, interpersonal and project-based and you don't really know what to do with them and you literally write them down on a piece of paper and people go around the table and rank them in terms of like how real is this anxiety from a score of zero to 10. So someone could say like, I don't, you know, I'm really worried that you guys don't think I'm an expert in this and people can challenge, people can challenge that and say like, actually that's not even something that I'm thinking about right now and that could be, that could be a way. So I want to wrap up. So this has been work of fiction for this episode. Uh, we're really hungry for your suggestions about organizations from film and TV that you could tell us about. Right now, you should find us at nobel.io. That's N-O-B-L.io. And if you want to send us an email with your recommendation, email us at heart, H-E-A-R-T, at nobel.io. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to my lovely colleagues. 